Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Grant, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Lane DeGregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I'm going to replay an interview I did with Wright Thompson back in October of 2013. Thompson's first book was just released by Penguin Books this week. It's titled The Cost of These Dreams, Sports Stories and Other Serious Business. It consists of 14 of Thompson's previously published stories for ESPN. That includes the two stories that I talked with Wright about on this episode of the show. Michael Jordan has not left the building and the losses of Dan Gable. Thompson's profile on legendary wrestling coach Dan Gable is a perfect example of how and why reserved people open up to him. I think the main thing is just not being shy. I asked a lot of very, very personal questions and I just was around and when you do enough of these stories where you're around and you figure out how to be around in such a way that allows you to do your job. I mean, it isn't being the... I mean, I think being a fly on the wall is a myth. And you have to figure out the dynamic of the group. In this case, it was Gable and all of his kids and his wife and all of his grandkids and a bunch of former wrestlers. So, I mean, it's a silly thing, but the very first thing I did, I mean, and you can ask the Gables, I mean, 30 minutes in the door was make sure I knew, I think there were 18 people there, and I knew everybody's name. The Dan Gable story came up right on the heels of Thompson's profile of NBA legend Michael Jordan. That's the story that leads off the book. With the Jordan story, Wright said he kept thinking of the classic Esquire profile on Ted Williams, which was written by Richard Ben Kramer in 1986. That story was titled, What Do You Think of Ted Williams Now? Here's Wright on why he was thinking about that story. Like, that story is very much like a North Star. And the thing I've always wanted to do, always, is write that story. A story like that. And I knew going in that there are only a couple of athletes famous enough to make that even possible. And I knew I had, you know, I didn't know how much, but I had some access to one of them, one of the few. And so, you, you know, you might get one shot at something like that in a whole career. And so I was very focused and aware of not blowing it. And then when I left Charlotte, I knew I had it. The book is fantastic, of course, and it's no surprise to me that after one week of sales, it's already showing up at number four on the New York Times bestseller list for paperback nonfiction. As usual, we've linked to the book and some more of Wright Thompson's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. 
Stay tuned. This is Ganger the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. Fairfield grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. Gangry the Podcast is also brought to you by the Department of English at Fairfield University home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. We're here with Wright Thompson today. Wright, thanks for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, Let's let's start talking about the Dan Gable story. Uh, You told me when we first uh, started... Uh, exchanging emails about doing this podcast that it was a story I should read, and for some reason I had missed it when it came out. Uh, what was what was it about the story that you like and that you really wanted to talk about? You know, I liked that... I don't know. I, there, there was nothing I'd change about it, which is exceedingly rare. Uh, and, I mean, I felt like it was a story, of a new story about a person who'd been written about a lot uh, which to me is the sort of bar for a profile succeeding or failing on a fundamental level. And I, I thought that it was structured in such a way that it had none of the stench of journalism on it. You know, I mean, I thought that it was like a short story about someone who was real, and I liked that. And the way it sort of uh, just flowed through time. Uh, and... I don't know. Like, I, I just, I don't know. I liked it. Yeah, it really did feel like a short story, especially the ending. I don't know what it was about the ending. I think it was a line about the trees rustling and something like that. Just like, I was like, oh my God, this is like, it, this is a short story. Um, and I was just struck by that. It was, it was, it really worked well. well I appreciate that. I mean, it was supposed to read like a short story, so I'm glad that, you know, came across. Uh, Gable seems like somebody who he seems like somebody who'd be intensely personal um, and not be the type of person who would want to sh- open up his entire life. How did is that the case? And if so, how did you get him to open up? Uh, yes, that is the case. I mean, uh, I was surprised. I mean, you know, I think the main thing is just not being shy. I asked a lot of very, very personal questions, and I just was around. And when you do enough of these stories where you're around and you figure out how to be around in such a way that allows you to do your job. I mean, it isn't being the... I mean, I think being a fly on the wall is a myth. And you have to figure out the dynamic of the group. In this case, it was Gable and all of his kids and his wife and all of his grandkids and a bunch of former wrestlers. So, I mean, it's a silly thing, but the very first thing I did, I mean, and you can ask the Gables, I mean, 30 minutes in the door was make sure I knew, I think there were 18 people there, and I knew everybody's name. And it became sort of like a party trick where they would just be like, all right, name everybody. And I would, you know, go through it. And I blended in pretty quickly so that I was just, lost in the weird circus of his family. 
And I think that helped making him comfortable a lot. I mean, that's the trick to these things is how do you quickly become part of the furniture? Did um, How long did it take you as a reporter to get to the point where you had no qualms about asking anything? You know, I don't know. I mean, I... I've never been terribly shy, but I don't know. I decided that uh, I think it starts with the first email. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in never having to eat an email. You know, where you, you know, I think you start off and you want to send the first email in such a way that gets you to be able to write the story you want to write, and you do this enough. And I just, I don't ever want to have to defend something I know is wrong. And so I'm very blunt in the first emails to people about what it is I want to do and why. And so I think that if they've said yes to that, they understand what's going on. And when you ask people I write about from the Gables to Michelle Menzel or whoever, and I say over and over and over to people, I'm not your friend. And I think that buys me. I just feel very comfortable going in that, I'm here to ask questions you might not want to answer. You don't have to answer them, but everybody knows the score. Everybody knows what's going on. What uh, what drew you to Gable in the first place? You know, I, I'd just done that Jordan story, and I got an email about the Jordan story from the head of the Dan Gable Museum. And I don't remember the exact timing, but two or three days after the Jordan story ran, the IOC announced they were cutting wrestling. So those, so Gable was in, reintroduced into my head at about the same time, and my first thought when I heard about the IOC is Dan Gable must be having an aneurysm. And so I emailed, hang on, let me, let me get my email and find the first mention of Dan Gable in my archive, hang on. Uh, let's see here, scrolling through. Scrolling through. All right. Here we go. February 27th to Patrick Stigman and to Jenna Janovey. I should go see Dan Gable. And Patrick wrote back. Let's see. I sent that at February 27th at 11.06 a.m., and at 11.11 a.m., Patrick said, terrific thought, and it was on. Uh, who's Patrick again? He's the uh, editor-in-chief of ESPN.com. Okay, okay. Um, so, so, I mean, uh, it was five minutes. <laughs> five minutes. And that was five days. That, that really was. That was about five days after the, the, the issue that had the Jordan story in it hit the newsstand. So. Yeah, I don't know the timeline exactly, but, yeah, I mean, I, it was very soon. I remember that. And... It was, you know, I need to go see Dan Gable, and that was the extent of the idea. I had no idea what I would find. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, um, do you do do it's, you do a lot by email? It seems, especially setting stories up. Well, yeah, I, I like to write a letter mm-hmm. uh, to people saying this is what I want to do. With Gable, it was much simpler. It was, I want to come talk to you about your life and about how the IOC decision decision fits into the arc of it. 
And, I mean, I think it's a testament to how much he was willing to give to bring attention to this issue, that with very few questions, he was willing to uh, just say, yeah, come on. And he was really open. It was funny, at the end of the first day, I'm sort of middle in the first day, we were walking, he was going to something that I wasn't going to in Des Moines. And I hadn't had a story come out since Jordan. I'd written two, but he didn't know that. And he sort of looked over at me and goes, there's a lot of pressure on you, too. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you just had this story that everybody liked. And so, you know, what if this story's not any good? You know, people are going to think, like, you know, it's over. And I looked at him. I'm like, are you trying to get in my head? And he got this huge grin on his face and then walked out of the hotel. And I'm like, well, that's just the quintessential Dan Gable moment. Uh, And... You know, he just was really, he was very open to it, and I was surprised at how funny he was. Yeah, I was going to I was actually going to ask you, uh, was there any anything that surprised you about about Dan Gable and anything beyond that, or anything in the reporting process that, that you didn't expect going in? Well, I mean, I didn't expect, it just became very, very clear after a day with him that well, it took me a long, not a long time, it took me several days, but it was definitely still during the initial reporting when I figured out the, the central arc of the story, which is he has, any loss brings back every loss for him. I mean, because watching wrestling with Dan Gable the first night, I was it hit me like there's something very weird about this. And some poking and prodding and it quickly became apparent that that's what was going on. And then from that moment on, the arc was set. Mm-hmm. Did, um, how, how much time did you spend with him, uh, and with the family? God, I don't know a lot. Uh, <laughs> I mean, hang on. Well, let me go to, let me go to ICAL. <laughs> I will tell you, because I don't remember. I'm going to be the world's worst guest because my memory is crap. All right, let's see. I was with them Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I was with them March 20th to the 25th or 6th. Mm-hmm. Uh so a lot. So almost a week. Uh, I'm imagining a lot of time with them each day we, throughout that every time waking line. moment. Mm-hmm. Basically, I mean, Dan and I went to the the gym and the sauna and the hot tub every morning when he got up, and I was with him until they went to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then I usually hung out with either his daughter or his sons-in-law or whatever at night. So, uh, I mean, all day, every day. This is a very wonky type of question to ask, but do you do you you don't stay with them in their home, do you? Uh, no, I, I've done that. Actually, I just did that for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm writing about a surfer in Tahiti, and I slept on his floor, and it's too much. Right. Like I don't think I'll do that again. I mean, I did it for a variety of reasons, many of them logistical, just because he lives in a very remote part of Tahiti, and it would have been three hours of daily commute to get from a hotel to him and it was just easier to wake up there and he gets up every morning at five so now you're talking about me having a 3 a.m wake up call every day and it just seemed like this it doesn't make sense uh 
but it was it was pretty intense. Yeah, and you don't think you'll do it again? I, I mean, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, unless necessity dictates, but it was too much. Mm-hmm. Did um, I, I want to go back a little bit to Gable and, and talk about uh, we, one of the reasons I asked you how much time you spent with him? Uh, did you know the backstory of his sister before you went there? Yeah, you did. Yeah, know that? I, I, I did, and it was interesting because he brought it up first. Because that's the thing I was worried about is how do you bring it up? Because, I mean, it's one of those things that people know, but he doesn't talk about much. And when he does talk about it, if you go back and read all these stories, it's almost the same quotes. Like, he talks about it in a way that seems like he is, you know, reading from his own script. I mean, the scene in the hot tub is the thing that made the thing work. I'm sorry, the scene in the sauna at right, the, near the, right. the next to last section. I mean, that happened, and I was blown away. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was because he brought it up. Uh, how, how do you, um, when you when you go into interviews and you know you're going to have something that, and I think reporters, anybody who's done anything like in-depth like this has, has these moments where you know you're going to have to ask something that you feel like they're not going to want you to ask. Um how how do you get over that and, and then ultimately ask it? You just got to ask it. I mean, you know that's the that's the job. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, I mean, that's never really been a problem. I mean, right. you know, it's just a it's a question of timing and uh, it, was, it was interesting because right. So I knew that when he found out. When he'd gotten the phone call about the guy who killed his sister being dead, this guy named Mike DeRoe was with him when he got the phone call, and I knew that. And we were in the sauna with Mike. Mm-hmm. And so I actually thought, like, you know, I wonder if this is going to come up. And so I had cardboard and a pencil because the notebooks weren't working in the sauna. Like a notebook and a pen wasn't working. Right. So I tore a cardboard box into squares and then took a pencil so I could take notes. But it was really, it's funny because that pencil was so damn loud on cardboard in these very quiet moments of him burying his soul. So I was trying to sort of wait a couple of beats and then write as he was saying the next thing so it wouldn't just be like the silence of the sauna with like, you know. I mean, I remember being very worried about that. Yeah. Yeah, so the the cardboard is very gay talise uh, esque, I guess. Um, well, those are shirt boards. Well, totally right, different. Right. Right. <laughs> was there anything else about that story that that stands out for you? Um, I, like I said, it was very very short story esque and 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 really moving because I, I think we all I, like I thought of my grandpa who would never say anything to anybody ever about anything bad that ever ever happened to him in his life. And here's this guy who, in many ways, is, is the same, but is completely opening up, and and you get this really intimate profile of the guy. Is, I mean, is there anything else that stood out in your mind with regards to the story? You know, I mean, it was a great edit job too, because the entire edit was cutting. I mean, the original draft. I think the story ran at eight thousand words online and in the magazine, and I think the original draft was like eleven three. And basically, I mean, Jay Lovinger, my editor, said cut 
I mean, there were all sorts of things. In the, like, right, there was a whole section about the hilarity of his grandkids running around the suite. You know, and I mean, I thought that section was hilarious. We cut it. There was a whole section of him. You know, I, I spent a day with him at the Iowa State Legislature. It got, if not completely cut, almost completely cut. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Uh, there was, you know, I had this, you know, I went out to eat with the whole family. Like, there are a lot of things. We just went through it and were very rigorous about everything that wasn't directly related to the art got cut, no matter how much we liked the individual scene. And that was, to me, the thing that put it over the top. Yeah. But there was nothing in there because, you know, sometimes you have things in there because you almost feel compelled to serve the larger idea of the profile, which is this isn't about me trying to write a short story. This is people learning about someone very famous, and you part of you thinks you almost owe them something that sheds light on who they are. And, you know, Jay was very rigorous about everything that isn't directly related to the arc has to go. Uh, can you talk uh, a little bit about your relationship with your editor uh, at ESPN? And um, I'm always interested to hear uh, really successful writers talk about their, their relationship with their editors. I mean, I, what do you want to know? <laughs> um, how long have you been working with them? And uh, I, I guess just I, what's the normal process like for you? Uh, I've been working with him for, I mean, seven years. And... I mean, we talk a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, I've said this before, but sometimes I feel like the stories are almost an accidental byproduct of the process, uh, and, you know, we're all pulled at ESPN to do a lot of cross-platform stuff, which requires sort of not just the extra work, but a lot of extra logistical stuff, and one of the things I've had to really concentrate on, and it done an okay job, I think, is making sure that just meaningless random conversations with Jay still fit into the schedule. Because it just it gets busier and busier, and most of what the work is added has nothing to do with the work. It's just logistics, you know, I mean, because there's so many more people involved. So I've had to make a real conscious effort to make sure that we still just talk for an hour and a half about nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... You know, the process is we'll talk before. We talk a lot less. The conversations get shorter and shorter because we know each other so well that it's almost shorthand. You know, like in the beginning, I would file a story, and then he would send me back an edit that just had sort of big thoughts in it in all capital letters. And then I would try to fix that, and he would send back one with questions. And then I would do that, and then he would send back an actual edit. Now I file it, and he just calls and tries to explain what he thinks the problem is. I mean, he doesn't send there. It's all on the phone. And so I'll take notes and then uh, do a new draft, and then we'll do an edit. We'll go through and ask questions, and, uh, you know, we go back and forth. For Gable, uh, we edited that in person. Like some, you know, every now and then for a story that we think is really good, I'll fly up to New York and we'll do it at his house. So we did that for Gable. Um, I'm glad you brought Gable back up because I had one more question, and I, this is what I was stumbling over a little bit ago. Have you talked with him since uh, wrestling was added back in for, I think, what, 2020? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I talked to them several times. I mean, the family really thought I got him, which was gratifying. Uh, you know, 
wife sent me pictures of him reading the story for the first time, which I've never actually seen before. Uh, and he was very emotional about it. Um, and yeah, no, he's jacked about the Olympics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get these hilarious text messages every now and then that are just classic Gable. <laughs> like, full of like, God, I can't, I don't have my, I mean, just full of exclamation points and like, you know, like, get off your ass. You know, it's <laughs> hilarious. I mean, he's like, you know, he's the most authentically, he, he's so authentically him all the time that it almost becomes funny when he does something that's just super Gable. Mm-hmm. Did, did you end up liking him more than you thought you would? I really liked him. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you don't know what people are going to be like, but he is, you know, I don't know if I would have liked him in 1984. Right, right. You know, uh, but, I mean, I think he is, I mean, I think he's mellowing, and I think that, you know, there is this hint of triumph at the end of the story, mm-hmm. and that's real. I mean, it's, you know, it seems like he might be finally letting go of all of this sort of pain and the need to bury it with winning. You know, there's something almost heroic in Dan Gable being willing to give it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also sort of, I mean, it's, it's a happy and sad ending, which I like, because it's not really either. And, I mean, I came away, oh, this is funny, I just found the cardboard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here are the notes. 180 plus, that must be temperature. Handful of water out of bucket splashes face, slicks hair in corner of sauna. Yeah, that's the, there's the cardboard. That's funny. That's great. Uh, you, you, uh, do you save your notes from everything? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. So. No, um, I mean, I, I like them. You, yeah. I mean, I have, I mean, I have, I have 12 years of notebooks. Do you ever go back and look through them? I don't. No. Uh, but, I mean, I haven't been, you know, they're quasi-organized. Like, I pulled out the Gable box and the Jordan box for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Jordan story, uh, which ran back in February, um, the the first thought that, that when I read it, um, I guess we're transitioning here, the first thought that I had when I read it was, how did he ever get the access um, to Jordan. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, it took me, I don't know, I think I chased him for a year and a half, and I was going to do it either way. I mean, I had, basically I had paid to get the last 18 months of his flight logs to try to figure out everywhere he went because I was just going to go stalk him. I mean, we were doing it no matter what. Right. To run on his 50th birthday. Mm-hmm. And... I was ready to do it no matter what. And uh, so I wrote, God, I'm trying to think. I was in England doing British Open stuff when I had the first conversation with his publicist. Uh, and then we talked, and then I sent an email to his agent that was, I think, very blunt. And uh, the, they were into it. Because they knew I was going to do it anyway, and he had to talk to somebody about turning fifty, you know. Right, right. And uh, and I mean, they said yes. This is what's funny. They said yes, but I had already agreed to be at LSU for the one day one game issue in November. Mm-hmm. 
and that's the weekend they wanted to do it. And I, so I wrote Jordan, I wrote him back and said, no. And they were like, what? And I'm like, well, you know, I have a commitment. I said I would be somewhere. And there's this huge sort of magazine plan that involves me being there. And it would screw a whole lot of people if I backed out. So I'm sorry. The answer is no. And I mean, I don't know what effect that had on it, but, mm-hmm. you know, they came back. I thought it was dead, frankly. I thought it was over. And, you know, two months later, came back and said, okay, we're going to do this. I mean, I, you know, it was basically like, can you be in Charlotte in three days? You know, and the answer was, well, yes. Yeah. That's pretty. Uh, well, I, what's it? Um, what was it like interviewing and, and being around someone like Jordan, who is somebody who has always been in, in such control? Uh, and when you subject yourself to this type of profile, you're almost giving up control uh, in a lot of ways. So um, can you talk a little bit about, about what that was like? I don't think he ever felt like he gave up control. Mm-hmm. And when the story came out, I mean, I know he asked, you know, the people around him, like, how did he find all this stuff out? I'm like, well, you told him, you know. Uh, I mean, there was a mo- look, there's always a moment in a profile where, they're feeling you out, and it doesn't matter what access you agree to beforehand. That's totally meaningless. They're going to decide in the room. And with him, it was, I started talking about how a lot of, you know, I started talking about how Mickey Mantle always thought he was going to die young. And he got this look on his face, and it was like you could tell he was deciding whether or not to be really honest. Mm-hmm. And and then he started, then he got very open, and then all the people around him got very open because they, you know, the entourage, I hate that word, the show has sort of given it a different meaning, but the inner circle takes their cues from the person in charge. And once he's open, everybody was open. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best thing for that story was I spent three hours watching a basketball game with the four people closest to him in the world who talked nonstop for three hours in anecdotes about someone who nobody really knew anything about. Right. Um, there's there's a line early in the story that I think um, I, I just really like, and I, I marked it down. Um, it's uh, the, uh, the couple sentences. There's a palpable simmering whenever you're around Jordan, as if Air Jordan is still in there churning, trying to escape. It must be strange to be locked in combat with the ghost of your former self. Um, is is that the like the main thing you took away from spending time with him that he's constantly in this inner inner battle? Well, I mean, I think more than that, it's that he's still trying to figure out how, what to do after you've been Michael Jordan. And, you know, the cost of his ambitions and dealing with the loss of a kid from Wilmington, North Carolina, named Mike Jordan. And, you know, still struggling with the death of his father and, you know, just trying to you know, I mean, figure out what he does now and what it means and why. I mean, I, I was sort of, you know, he seemed like a dry drunk to me mm-hmm. in terms of, and I don't mean alcohol, you know what I mean. Right. I mean, like, like just the idea that, you know, the whole 218 thing, that, you know, he still thinks about playing, and that's real, he does. I mean, it got to, it was so it was serious enough that he kept talking about this, and I actually stopped and I was like, all right, uh, you're not coming back, are you? Because I didn't want to be the guy in the room who didn't ask. Right. You know? 
I mean, the conversation had that tone where I thought, shit, I need to make sure that this is, that he's not really thinking about coming back. And so, what did he say? He was like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, I felt the need to ask. Right. Right. Um, can you talk about how you structure the story um, and, and, and kind of, I mean, I think I know why, uh, but can you talk about the structure, especially, like, structured around him reminiscing? Uh, can you talk, I guess, can you talk about that? Well, I wanted it to be, I mean, have some of that short story structure. I wanted it to be, you know, a story about now because I felt like I sort of, lo- I'm glad I didn't go in November. It would have been a totally different story. I caught him during the two weeks where he was between homes for the first time and you know, since his rookie year in Chicago. Like, I caught him in this weird period of transition, which is the cloud and the gravitational pull of that transition is what made the story work. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just the access, it was real access. Right. I mean, it was him at a very sort of influx, vulnerable moment. And so, you know, uh, I mean, I have the original outline here in front of me. And so it was one lead, two packing, Three, George slash connection to James. Four, work. Five, inner circle. Six, speech. Seven, 218 wants to play. Eight, trapped. Nine, domestic life. Ten, uh, Montana LeBron. Eleven, uh, hoops burning. Twelve, end sleeping. And it didn't end up being exactly that. I mean, I cut eight. I cut nine, I think. I combined five and six, I think. Uh, I mean, the, yeah, there, I mean, there, there are two other sections I wrote and then cut once I wrote mm-hmm. them and looked at them. I just realized that I was just fulfilling the outline just to do it, like the tail was wagging the dog. And, it, you know, while it seemed necessary when connecting the dots in a very, you know, uh, literal way, you didn't really need it. Yeah. Uh, you know... Like I wrote here, uh, you know, this is a story about a moment in time. Uh, you know, I'm, I have my original notes on hotel stationery, so what became the outline? You know, anyway, I mean, it was very, it became very, you know, I went to Charlotte and then I went to D.C. to talk to everyone in his office. And when I left D.C., it was outlined. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I felt very certain about what it was going to be. Do you outline every story? Yeah. Do you write as you report, or do you kind of out, do the outline and then as you're reporting, and then write it when all your reporting is done? Oh, I write when all my reporting is done. Mm-hmm. Um, was uh, I, I noticed in the, in the Jordan story um, that I, there are times when it's clear that you are asking him a question, but you don't use the first person. Um, can you talk about? that why not just you know kind of use the first person i you know hang on. I'm real quick. i don't know i mean it sort of felt like it felt like it wasn't needed mm-hmm. you know and i'm not shy about using it at all but it felt because he's so famous it would. I didn't want it to be like, oh, look at, look what I did. 
because I thought it was like a real story, and it, it, I didn't ever want anything to make it look like an access font. Right. I mean, I could have written another 6,000 words with great scenes that, you know, that would have been... Uh, you know, new as well. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I, so I didn't want to mess with that. No, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's so many times a celebrity profile just devolves into I am with this person, um, and I think it detracts. Yeah, I, I agree. So, um, what was it like to sit and watch a basketball game with Michael Jordan? Well, it's pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, because well, he's very intense. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know what the appropriate example is. Right. Uh, but I mean, he, you know, it was very clear watching that it was that he could not watch. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'd been with him so long that it was very comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it turned into he was asking me questions, you know. Uh, I mean, it was very, it was very easy. I mean, there was no, I mean, I don't know, like it, it took me longer to get over Dan Gable being Dan Gable than Michael Jordan being Michael Jordan. Okay. Uh, was there anything? It was very, I don't know. I mean, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but I knew, I just was focused. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I I love the Richard Ben Kramer Ted Williams story. Like I love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, I have here on my desk the January to June 1986 Esquire bound volume that has it in there. Like that story is very much like a North Star. And the thing I've always wanted to do, always, is write that story, a story like that, and. I knew going in that there are only a couple of athletes famous enough to make that even possible. And I knew I had, you know, I didn't know how much, but I had some access to one of them, one of the few. And so, you, you know, you might get one shot at something like that in a whole career. And so I was very focused and aware of not blowing it. And then when I left... Charlotte, I knew I had it. Mm-hmm. And so the thing I was happiest about is that, I mean, I didn't choke. <laughs> because I knew that it was in the notebook. Right. I mean, like, I, I, you know, and so that was very gratifying to sort of have set very high stakes for yourself and then have it and then stick the landing was, I mean, I felt, I went out that, the, the day it ran, uh, I was in Bristol, Connecticut, because I had to go up there and do the car wash, you know, all the TV stuff that right. goes with it. And I was going to New York that night because, I don't know why, I think I was already editing another story with Jay Lovinger, my editor. But I uh, I went into New York for the night, and my friend Seth Wickersham and my boss, Patrick Stigman, Seth lives there, and Patrick was in town and we went to PJ Clark's and sort of like toasted the story and celebrated. And I don't ever do that. Right. I mean, I make a point to uh, always start on whatever the next story is in some meaningful way the day the story runs. 
Uh, so there was this sense on this one, like, hey, let's take a day, because this is a hell of a thing. So yeah. anyway. Did you come away feeling like there were any similarities between Jordan and yourself, personality-wise? Uh, I mean, just in, I mean, on a smaller scale, maybe. Right. I mean, but just, I felt like I understood him. I mean, in terms right. of sort of being so driven for so long that it's very easy to look up and sort of have watched those drives come to be the sort of, you know, dominating thing in your life. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, I mean, I think he's, I mean, I think everybody feels a little like that. Right. And I think that's the one reason the story resonated is because, you know, there was no, it wasn't hagiography. I mean, people saw something of their own struggle and his struggle. I mean, I think his is magnified because, I mean, he might be, I mean, he's certainly one of the five most famous people on earth. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know who that list would be. Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, you know, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton. I don't know what the list is. Right. But he's on it, I think probably. Yeah, Maybe he's Messi. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and so... Everything about his is magnified. And he also was, you know, in the first generation of modern celebrity. And so, in some ways, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like he broke the sound barrier. And we don't, we don't really know what that does. To, we didn't really know what that did to people. I mean, I think that he is very, he is singular and unique. And his problems are singular and unique. But there are shades of his problems in all of our lives, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, I, I, I guess came away being very glad. I came away wanting Michael Jordan's money, but nothing else about Michael Jordan's life. That's, uh, I think that's a good thing to take away, right? Yeah, I mean, I would love his golf stream. You know, <laughs> I would love all that money. I don't know if I'd want to deal with, you know, I think he has lost many parts of himself that he would like back. Mm-hmm. I guess the one thing I just kind of realized is that both of the people we were talking about today, Dan Gable and Michael Jordan, they both went through this uh, really tragic loss um, that I think had a great impact on their lives. And um, and you ended up getting them talking about that. And it seems like it was because there were people around them who also experienced that loss. Yeah, well, I mean... I often, I don't know, I offer a lot of information about myself during interviews. Uh, I mean, always. Mm -hmm. One, I think, you know, just reminds the people that you're not part of some faceless Borg in front of them trying to mine, you know, their personal lives for profit. It just reminds them that you're a real person. Mm -hmm. I think that helps. Well, Ray, thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been a great talk. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, is there anything else you're working on that we can be looking forward to? Man, I'm working on a lot of stuff. <laughs> I, uh, uh, well, I got this thing on the Tahitian Surfer, mm-hmm. and then I've got a ton of World Cup. Great. Great. Well, thanks, Wright. Uh, it's been great. Awesome. Thanks a lot. That was an interview I did with Wright Thompson in October 2013. His first book, The Cost of These Dreams, Sports Stories, and Other Serious Business, 
was released by Penguin Books in early April. As usual, you can find a link to that book and more of Thompson's work on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcasts. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry, that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Our music comes from Audio Nautics. The promos and sponsorship messages were voiced by Mimi Lachlan and Gracie Eldrenkamp. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>